This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Matt Russell, and today we are breaking down the cable giant Charter Communications. Now, if you enjoyed our business breakdown on First Citizens Bank, we were lucky to have some of the Harris Oakmark teammates, portfolio managers, Tony Coniaris and John Satars, come join us for this deep dive on the cable market and charter. Now, on business breakdowns, we do approach each episode a bit differently. And for charter, we thought it was really, really important to understand the physical asset of cable. It is a piece of infrastructure that I think we can take for granted in our day-to-day lives. And Tony and John actually give some great food for thought in terms of how the cable market operates and how it acts as somewhat of a utility in our day-to-day lives. So we spent a big portion of the first half of the conversation actually outlining the history of cable, the asset itself, what it does differently versus some of the alternatives, both historically and the alternatives today. And then we flash forward in terms of how the industry is actually operating today. The idea of cord cutting has become very consensus, but it's not very obvious in terms of how that actually impacts a business like Charter and its flagship product, Spectrum. So we go into some of the case studies that have recently occurred, such as the ESPN negotiations, and then tie it all back in terms of the business model. So I think this is one of the more interesting business breakdowns in the sense that you can look at the asset, you can look at the business model, you can look at the industry and the industry structure. There's so many different lessons that you can take out here. And I think Tony and John did an excellent job in terms of providing that. So please enjoy this business breakdown on Charter. Quick note before the episode, please make sure to check out the Charlie Munger interview with John Collison on our Invest Like the Best feed. There may be no better example of lifelong learning than Charlie Munger. And the conversation between him and John captures that perfectly. You'll find a link in the show notes, and on that episode, you'll hear a bit more about the backstory to the interview and the reprint of Poor Charlie's Almanac from Stripe Press. All right, Tony, John, very excited to have you both here to break down Charter Communications. It is what we were talking about before, a complex name with a very unique history. But I want to just start out with the basics and give a very simple example of how a listener would encounter charter communications in their day-to-day lives. Thanks for having us, Matt. Charter goes to market as Spectrum. Depending on where you live in the country, you may have Xfinity, which is Comcast version. Or if you live in the New York metro area, you may have Optimum, which is owned by Cablevision. Charter provides broadband internet, cable television, landline, phone, and wireless cellular service. The the principal asset of the company is 860,000 network miles that pass 57 million homes and businesses, which is almost 40% of the United States. They currently have 31 million broadband customers, or about 54% of that footprint that they pass. It's a similar size to Comcast. 
And there's 500 million devices connected to Charter's network. So if I'm to simplify what it means to be a cable operator, it is the one that owns the cable, in this case, Charter, that's connected to your house. And they are providing you with these services as it relates to television, internet, phone. Is there anything else that you would add in there in terms of what it means to actually be a cable operator? That's exactly right. We think about them doing two things. One, they're these digital infrastructure providers. They're a household utility like water, electricity, or sewer. The other thing they do is value-added services. So they package video channels together and sell them to you as a bundle. They sell you landline phone services or home security that ride on top of that network. Matt, it's a fat pipe with lots of different uses. And depending on the customer's needs, they pick one or all of the different products that are available, which is helpful for the business model. But I want to take a minute to expand on this concept of infrastructure. You read a lot about it's an infrastructure asset. It's not an infrastructure asset. What does that mean? It's interesting because when we talk about this as an infrastructure asset, that's a unique view. You're not going to find Charter an infrastructure ETF, for instance, like I checked the iShares ETF infrastructure, fine, it wasn't in there. And I find that surprising because it's not that different. You'll find a lot of utilities thought of as being infrastructure, cable that delivers electrons. This is a cable that delivers bytes. And at the end of the day, it's not that different. It's a more or less necessary service, billed monthly, with a lot of assets in the ground that deliver it and prevent a lot of competition. There doesn't tend to be a lot of local options, which helps the business model over time. And it's just interesting to us because if you look at how other similar infrastructure assets that are driven by data demand, like this business is, you have things like wireless towers trading at 18 or 19 times earnings or cash flow and data centers at 22 to 24 times, and then cable operators like a charter at 10 or 11 times. And we think that's a little unfair. You gave a lot of good reasons as to why it would be classified as an infrastructure asset. And as I rack my brain, only thing that I'm thinking is you're talking about absolute needs in terms of water and electricity versus maybe this is a bit more discretionary. We can debate whether something like internet and television in this day and age are needs. But is there anything that you think is stopping it from being classified as an infrastructure asset? No. And I checked one ETF, right? There might be one out there that considers it and puts it in. As an industry, it really doesn't get categorized or lumped with those. And if you look at the stability, the cash flows, and the economics of the business model, it looks an awful lot like those things and more like an infrastructure play than a lot of things you'll find in an infrastructure fund. I agree with your point on the absolute necessity of it, but it really is a part of our infrastructure, at least in the Western world. Yeah, I think it has a very reasonable case based on what you laid out. So if we just look at what the cable market looks like today, we're going to go back in time, but just a lay of the land of where it is today and how Charter fits into that. How would you lay that out? Yeah, so none of the cable companies actually overlap with each other. And it's more about, there's a long history of assets that started on a very local basis, but then being consolidated over time. And so today, as I mentioned earlier, Charter has about 40% of the country. Comcast is a very similar size, also about 40% of the country. And then obviously it drops off. You have a few like Altice and Cox that are about 5% of the country. And then from there, there's a lot of players, but all of them are very small. 
And can we go back in time in terms of the actual build out and development of the industry? It's one of those fascinating things where you can't imagine a world where there weren't these wires going into homes, but it did previously exist. So what did it look like day one? Was Charter involved in the mix? And I'm sure it looked much different than it looks today. But just some backstory to the industry formation and how we got to the point where we are now, where it feels like regional monopolies to some extent, but much more consolidated. Broadcast television started first, and that was in the late 1930s. Its adoption got delayed by World War II. But after the war, it really started to take off. And the problem that people ran into was if you lived in an area that was where the broadcast tower was blocked by the geography, so maybe there was a mountain in between you and the tower, you couldn't get a signal. And some entrepreneurial folks started put antennas on the top of these mountains and run cable down into the towns and connect people's homes. The story, it's unclear if this person was actually the first one to do it, but the story goes that he was trying to sell televisions and ran into trouble because a bunch of people couldn't get service. And that's what led to this innovation that started the cable industry. It's interesting. The cable TV, CATV, stands for Community Antenna Television. So at first, it was more of like an antenna business with the cable to make sure that folks could get the service. And the interesting thing is, as we had a proliferation of channels and the antenna wasn't going to work for that, there was a need for something else. And that's when these more entrepreneurial community antenna television companies decided to offer more channels through a cable. And this really started happening in the 80s. We actually made our first investments in the cable industry in the late 1980s and early 1990s, which was a little bit odd for the value manager. Because when you looked at these companies, they were fast-growing companies with no reported profits, no book value, no free cash flow. They're spending a boatload of money to lay cable and sign up new customers, which takes marketing up front, which takes a lot of CapEx up front. And that growth was gobbling up the cash flow. So you really couldn't see it. But when you looked at what was going on in the industry, there was a lot of transactions taking place. There was a lot of consolidation. And you could see there was going to be value in this subscriber stream that they were signing up. But if you're onboarding a lot of subscribers at once, you don't see the cash flows from the existing subscribers because it costs so much to put in the new ones. But when you looked at M&A transactions, you were seeing values being placed on a per subscriber basis. And based on the underlying free cash flow economics of an existing subscriber, understanding that gap accounting is obfuscating the earnings and that the cash flow statement, because of the upfront capital expenditures, is obfuscating the free cash flow potential of the business. The other thing we liked was there was these group of management teams that were obviously very entrepreneurial and value maximizing thinker types coming at an intersection of two industries that were a little bit more staid, that being traditional media, broadcast media, and telco. And so there was a real opportunity for some smart entrepreneurial value maximizer types to both roll up and build out this cable business. And that's where we went from everybody having a TV in three channels to throughout the 90s, basically everybody having a couple TVs and 150 channels. And just with the laying of the cable, was this a land grab environment where once cable was laid, you were the provider to that specific household or that specific region? Do you have many areas where there's competitors that both have cable lines laid out together? 
just trying to visualize how intense that CapEx build out was and how the competitive nature of the industry kind of evolved with that in mind. It was very much a land grab for a long time because why would you overbuild someone else's plant that already existed when you could go to a new area that hadn't been built out yet? And part of that was working with the towns and getting franchise agreements. It was definitely a race to be first for a long time. There's just too much greenfield opportunity to try to just lay cable alongside somebody else's. It was a fast-growing industry. It went basically lots of small local cable operators and then a lot of consolidation. And if we look at the players that were early into that build-out, are they those that remain in the industry today? Did anything happen in terms of that major CapEx spend obviously comes with a lot. And sometimes you see these boom-busts, railroads being a great example of this for a variety of different reasons. But what happened over time in terms of the industry fragmentation, consolidation, and those early players turning into winners or losers? So I think one of the best ways to tackle this, and because it's emblematic of what many of the cable operators that we see today look like, maybe, John, why don't you go through the history of Charter itself? The story is very similar to the others. Maybe just before Charter, in 1997, Microsoft saw the internet coming and that cable really had an advantaged infrastructure to deliver internet to people's homes by happenstance or luck. They had this really thick pipe compared to the telephone companies that had a very small twisted pair cable. So Microsoft made a billion dollar investment in Comcast in 1997. And in 1998, Paul Allen, who had co-founded Microsoft with Bill Gates, but was no longer with the company, decided that he was going to go out and buy a small cable system called Charter. He used that as a launch pad and went on an aggressive acquisition spree, buying many other cable systems, paying very high prices, something like 15 times EBITDA when many other acquisitions were taking place closer to 11 times. And in 1999 and 2000 alone, he spent almost $15 billion buying cable systems. That's the origin story of Charter Communications. Wow. Those multiples, especially in that environment, plus that amount of capital outlay is quite significant. Now, was there a specific regional strategy in terms of what he was doing? Were there network effects, synergies, things that were really coming into play? Or was it simply, I know that these assets are important to the future of the internet, and I just want to own as many as I possibly can? I don't know if there was a longer term strategic plan that didn't come to fruition, but the assets that did get put together were not very contiguous and required a lot of reinvestment. So the high debt load that the company had, they were paying double-digit interest rates, coupled with the fact that a lot of the assets that he bought needed to be upgraded or rebuilt just to get them up to snuff, basically made it so that he couldn't keep doing more acquisitions or growing organically. So the company entered into a tougher period, had to do divestitures, etc. And then if we take that history from that era until today, now I think they're the number two cable operator in the US. What were the major decisions or things that have happened over that timeline to get them to where they are today? First thing they had to do was get rid of a bunch of debt. Unfortunately, the only way they could do that during the global financial crisis was when they were levered at what, close to 10 times? Almost 10 times, yeah. And cable assets were selling for about five, given the low equity markets and the fears around the economy. You could see why if you can't roll your debt in that environment, it's going to be very hard. Global financial crisis, valuation of the debt, twice the valuation of equities in the market. 
Charter had to restructure. And they did. And they went bankrupt. People like Apollo, Oak Tree invested in the debt of the company and took over during this restructuring, converted some of their debt to equity. They brought on new management over time. Eric Zinnerhofer, the partner at Apollo, became chairman. He's still chairman today. They brought in Tom Rutledge, who was COO of Cablevision, was an industry legend for creating and pushing the triple play of broadband, television, and home phone. They brought him into Charter as CEO. And then a year after Rutledge joined Charter, he purchased Resnan, or sometimes referred to as Optimum West from Cablevision for $1.6 billion. And a month after that, John Malone got back into the cable industry after being out for a long time, having sold TCI to AT&T and been more involved in the satellite side of the industry. I think Rutledge convinced him to come back to his roots and he made a 27% equity investment in Charter by purchasing stock directly from Apollo and Oak Tree. Yeah, I was wondering how long we would get into the conversation before mentioning that name of John Malone, but obviously a key player in the overall industry and then obviously this story as well. I am curious about that period in the financial crisis. You have assets that are historically good assets that are generating profits. And I think even something as simple as the casinos have fallen into this, where because they're such good assets, there's a lot of leverage that's attached to them. And then that can go wrong in periods of financial stress. Was that the case here? Or was that just a lingering debt load that had happened from the original build out in the 80s and 90s that still lingered with them into that financial crisis? The leverage was a result of the aggressive acquisitions at very high multiples. And then your leverage increases because the multiples are so high relative to EBITDA, your leverage becomes quite unbearable. You're exactly right. It's a classic example of a bankruptcy of a good company with a good collection of assets and a really bad balance sheet. And sometimes you just need to do some house cleaning on the debt side. And that's what was needed. Put some high-level numbers around it. Charter was probably generating over a billion dollars of unlevered free cash flow, but had $2 billion of interest expense. Tough to dig yourself out of. Very interesting. And then post-restructuring, were there any major changes to operations that materially changed how the business actually operated? So in 2015, Charter announced a deal to try and buy Time Warner Cable. That deal ended up not going through, or so everyone thought, and Comcast ended up buying the asset. A couple of months later, the FCC blocked the Comcast deal, and it never went to a formal challenge, but Comcast backed out, and Charter swooped back in and ended up buying both Bright House and Time Warner Cable, which roughly quadrupled the size of the company. John Malone used some of his other entities to provide equity financing for the deal, and that's around the time when we first got involved and made our first investment in Charter. And we will get to the business model soon, but I want to stick on the asset because I think it is so interesting. It's something many of us take for granted in our day-to-day lives. You referenced before that cable was particularly interesting to someone like Microsoft because of the thick pipe relative to something like what the telephone companies had. Can you just give a little bit more background in terms of the actual asset of cable and what it's able to do? So cable is often referred to as an HFC network, which stands for hybrid fiber coaxial network. And the piece that comes into your home that we're all familiar with that you twist into the back of your cable modem today, or you used to twist into the back of your set-top box, that's the coaxial piece. But when you're using your cable broadband service, 99.6% of the time, 
those packets are traveling along a fiber network. So it's something that's not well understood, but there is a lot of fiber in this asset that over time keeps getting deeper and deeper into the network, closer and closer to your home. And maybe you can go into a little bit more there in terms of where the fiber actually is. And when I think of something like Verizon fiber optic cable, how does that compare to what Spectrum is offering me in terms of the actual cable itself or anything else that differentiates it? Yeah. So the products are pretty indistinguishable at the end of the day to the consumer. I like to say that fiber is like commuting to work in a Ferrari. Cable networks today typically offer a gigabyte download speed and a little less than 50 megabytes upload speed, whereas most fiber networks today offer a gig symmetrical. Some of them have started going beyond that. The cable companies now, all of them, not just Charter, are investing to take their networks to multi-gigabyte symmetrical speeds. Symmetrical has become an interesting thing. As part of the COVID pandemic, there became a lot of buzz around symmetrical because people were doing more video calls. The reality is that usage is still more than 14 to 1 concentrated on the download side of the network. But perhaps there's a marketing advantage to it. So the cable guys, as part of this upgrade, are going that symmetrical direction. And as an example, a high definition video stream, like a 4K stream, may use 25 megabytes. A Zoom call like the one we're on right now, your upload may be one megabyte. So you don't need fiber and you don't even need what cable already offers today. But these networks continue to get upgraded. And as they get upgraded, something really interesting happens over time, which is that people develop new services that do consume more bandwidth. And it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg type of thing. But when you have these huge cable upgrades, because cable passes so much of the country, it's really what can then say to entrepreneurs, hey, there's this out there. What can we build with it? And does upgrading the network require actually digging up of cable and replacement? Or is there something else that's going on that allows them to do that? No, most of it is replacing the electronics through the network. The fortunate thing that is a little bit lucky is that original pipe was so high capacity. Part of it is replacing some of that with fiber and, like I said, pushing it deeper into the neighborhood. But it doesn't require restringing wires or digging up the streets. And that's why other technologies that don't have that advantage, like telephone, DSL, it's so much cheaper to upgrade cable because you don't have to do that. And are there other competitors in this broader spectrum of options between cable and fiber? Is there anything else that would be considered? There's a new entrant into town, although people have certainly tried this over the years. It's really gotten some traction recently, and that's fixed wireless, which because of the large C-band spectrum auction and the 5G technology upgrade for the wireless carriers... They found themselves with a little bit of excess wireless capacity for really the first time in their history. And they went out and said, how can we fill this up? And the logical thing to do was to sell a home broadband service at a reasonable price. And it's new to the market. It's easy to install because there's no wires. You just get shipped a device or you pick it up at the store and you plug it in and it often works. That right now is growing about three to three and a half million customers a year, which relative to 140 million households in the United States doesn't seem like a lot, but that's about the entire pace that the cable industry was growing before COVID. So they're really taking a lot of the growth right now. It's really the main reason why the cable companies are going through a growth lull 
fiber is growing about the same rate it was before COVID, the real change has been this new entrant in fixed wireless. I think that the good news for cable investors is that wireless mobile data grows very fast, and so does home broadband data usage. And home broadband data usage is so much more than mobile phone usage, something like 45 to 50 times more. So you can think about on your mobile phone each month, you may be using 15 gigabytes of data from your cellular carrier. At home, households use 700 gigabytes a month of data. So if you think about that, there's about 300 million cell phones in the United States. If each use about 15 gigabytes, it only takes 6 million households or a little more than 6 million households to consume that same amount of data and chew up that capacity in a wireless network. So this is something that can't go on forever in terms of how much it can grow. It's also something that as mobile usage keeps growing, the wireless carriers will be faced with a choice. And their choice will be to deploy a lot of CapEx to densify their network or to buy Spectrum. The other choice they have is to let their home broadband users who are consuming so much of this capacity roll off. And wireless, just to give you an idea, Verizon, the largest wireless carrier in the United States, from 2016 to 2022, they spent $130 billion on CapEx and $52 billion on Spectrum. For that $182 billion investment, they grew their EBITDA only $3 billion over those six years. And at some point, I have to imagine that the shareholders are going to wake up or the board is going to wake up and say, we can't justify the investments that we're making in our network or to pay the government for Spectrum to provide a service that costs the same as a wireless phone line, but consumes 50 times as much data. Let me put a finer point on this from an analogy perspective, because I think it's important to keep in mind, while fixed wireless has taken some growth out of the industry, as John was saying, its ability to do so going forward, we believe, isn't as strong as it looks in the rearview mirror, because it's a really niche product that is very competitively priced. And so it's lapping up a lot of customers with special needs for not a lot of bandwidth. And that's a unique thing. The capacity of fixed wireless as a competitor is a physics issue. It's not an opinion. It's laws of physics are at play, which is very different from a competitive standpoint, if you think about what that means. An analogy would be like between the use case of fixed wireless as a substitute would be air travel versus getting in your car and driving somewhere. If it's a four-hour drive, it's kind of on the bubble of do I fly? And if it's a 22-hour drive, it's not that hard of a decision. And for many and the vast majority of broadband subscribers, they want to fly because they need to fly because they have bandwidth needs that fixed wireless can't meet. Meanwhile, you have the service interruption issues for the other wireless customers from data hogs on fixed wireless. While it has impacted the industry, I want to make sure we make the point that there is a physical limit here. That makes sense. And I just want to zone in on the Verizon point there in terms of that CapEx spend. To me, that sounds similar to a maintenance CapEx spend just in terms of investing in the network to keep it at a certain state or keep it up to quality. I mean, is there a growth angle actually attached to what they're doing there? Or is there a large maintenance required for this industry more broadly? Just to key in on that specific point you made. There's definitely a maintenance component to that capital spend. The point I'm trying to get across here 
is that there's also a large investment to increase capacity as part of that capital budget. And they have increased capacity a lot. The problem that they have is they're selling that capacity for just pennies on the dollar. Verizon's capital investment on their balance sheet in PP&E and Spectrum has grown 50% over this time period, but their EBITDA has only grown 6%. And at some point when they no longer have excess capacity in the network, they're going to be faced with that decision of where do we go from here? Do we keep investing to create more capacity or do we let fixed wireless subs roll off? And so that same capacity can be used for mobile subs where they're paying us 50 times as much. If McDonald's, it would five bucks for a hamburger and most customers buy one hamburger. But what if they had a special where you could get 50 hamburgers for five bucks? There'd be a lot of people wanting to do that. And then there's only so much beef. Now, a word to zone in on what you mentioned about the mobile data usage relative to broadband and household data usage. I was surprising to hear that delta between the two. My first question is, does that largely just relate to television and watching television and that sucking up most of the data? And two, has that gap been closing over time? I would imagine that the amount of mobile data usage is growing substantially, but I'm curious to hear if that actually plays out with the numbers. Television's a big chunk of it, but it's not 90% of it. In terms of the convergence of mobile data usage and fixed, mobile data usage grows a little faster than fixed broadband usage. But it again, you may be talking about mobile usage growing at 35 or 40% and home broadband usage growing in the 20s. So it's not a huge difference or something that's going to be closed overnight. And the last point we'll get to on the assets before we move to the business model itself. We talked a little bit. These have become somewhat geographic monopolies, regional monopolies. Does anything change now in terms of what you mentioned with fixed wireless? Or is there anything else going on in the environment that would loosen the control that they have as a regional monopoly versus before? Any changes in the environment in terms of what's possible with fixed wireless that reduces the power that they have as a regional monopoly? First of all, this isn't a local monopoly, although sometimes it gets described that way. It's a local business in general where there are few options. But remember, fiber overbuilders, fiber option is available in about half charters markets today and fixed wireless in another good portion of their markets, not all, but in a good portion of their markets. So there are options about at least half the time. There's another option. That's good for consumers because there's choice, there's competition, it's making charter get better, and it's making the fiber guys get better. The pace of fiber deployment is not picking up, but their overbuild penetration as a percentage of charter's footprint has gone up from, call it 30, 35% a decade plus ago to closer to 50% today, and it's probably going up over 60. It hasn't been anything near a disaster economically going from 35 to 50. We don't think going from 50 to 60 is going to be a disaster either. But it's something to keep an eye on, and it's something management keeps a very close eye on. And in the case of Charter, differently than some of their cable competitors, they've been very careful to drive penetration and not give customers a reason to switch. So you'll hear about an Altice gouging on price and having very high average prices. Charter's on the other end of the spectrum, and John can give some specifics on this, but they charge on average a lower price to make that switching a tougher bargain for the fiber competitors. It's hard to get a very good sense of 
in a traditional business, you'd want to know what do they charge per month versus Altice or Comcast or the Viber Overbuilders. I think because these companies sell multiple products and they may have different price points in different geographic regions, or if you call up, depending on how hard you complain, the easiest way to think about it is on an EBITDA per subscriber basis, who is making the highest profits and who is in a more reasonable spot. And so that's where at a high level, I think it's easiest and clear to see that many of the other public cable companies make about 25% more EBITDA per subscriber than Charter does. And that's either an opportunity for Charter over time as they get closer to full penetration and they don't need to operate for more penetration, or it could be a risk for some of the other cable companies. We can shift a little bit into the financial model here. When you think about the business, that margin piece is a big piece of it. Are they offsetting that lower margin with more scale? When you think about just how you actually think about the model of this business using some type of subscriber rate against that EBITDA margin, how do you frame it in your own heads in terms of how you analyze the business? It's exactly right. So many investors have become used to valuing these businesses as a multiple of EBITDA. And that doesn't give Charter full credit for its strategy, which is to have lower prices, like I said, lower EBITDA per subscriber, but to drive penetration. And what penetration, where it really helps you is below the EBITDA line. It helps you above things like scaling programming costs or being more efficient with customer service. But where it really helps you is leveraging all of those expenses or capital expenditures that you do to maintain your network. It doesn't matter a lot of the times how many customers you have. But if you have more customers, your CapEx per subscriber is lower. And so when investors are putting a multiple on EBITDA, which is what is the simple rule of thumb metric in the industry, they're not differentiating between their smaller cable operators that have twice as much CapEx as a percentage of EBITDA that Charter does. And I guess the other side of the multiple equation would just be in terms of the visibility in that EBITDA. And to the extent that you have a strong feeling that those subscribers will stick around versus maybe more price gouging will result in more subscriber churn. I mean, does that EBITDA margin or lower pricing show up in more customer loyalty relative to peers as well? They don't disclose churn, but I do think it's clear that there is a benefit to it and you can see it in penetration. And there are smaller operators that are growing at a much lower rate and have grown at a much lower rate than Charter, despite seemingly having more opportunity. And Charter has one of the highest penetrations in the industry. And we think one of the reasons for that is the low prices. I think it's also because they do a good job investing in customer service, providing apps and video products that their customers want to use as well. One of the biggest trends, I think, over the past 10, 20 years, it's been e-commerce. And then cutting the cord is another very popular in vogue trend that's been going on for a long time. I'm just going to leave it as a very simple question. What impact has that had on Spectrum Charter, good or bad? So cord cutting lately is not a huge impact on Charter. The linear TV business became competitive on a nationwide basis decades ago when the satellite TV companies started competing. The margin that you get for 
transporting the packets and packaging the service. There became two nationwide competitors, right? A very long time ago with DirecTV and Dish. Cable TV penetration actually peaked in the year 2000. And over the next ensuing 10 years, satellite went from 15% to 35% of the market. Although it was still and still is today a large percentage of the revenue for the cable companies, it's a pretty small percentage of the EBITDA. And if we just zone in on a particular recent case study where Spectrum had a standoff with ESPN, and there has been this long history in terms of value chain extraction going on, and much of that being focused on what ESPN has been charging. Can you just get into that a little bit in terms of what was happening? And honestly, from a shareholder's perspective, what were you hoping for or what were you looking for in terms of the outcome of that event? I want to start by applauding Chris Winfrey for taking a stand against probably the most important media company right at the beginning of the NFL season during an important college football weekend. And I think the US Open tennis tournament was going on at the same time. While TV may not be a big part of the economic equation for Charter's bottom line, it is a service that a lot of their customers take and value at a very high level. He created upside optionality to longer the duration of the linear TV business and potentially create a more profitable role for the distributor. I'm glad you brought this up, Matt, because I don't think this agreement and this case study, if you will, is getting enough attention. I think there's two important things that happened here. Number one, this is really good for consumers, potentially. This is one deal, one time, but it's pretty good for consumers. I think what the charter folks were worried about was increasing media costs for consumers. It's a good thing for consumers because a lot of these cable networks were double dipping. You sign up for Disney Plus and then you're paying for the Disney Channel on your cable bundle. And that's double dipping. It's the same content for the most part and you're paying for it twice. And that's not okay long-term. This deal helps limit that. Number two, it's really the first time in one of these disagreements on carriage where we've seen the leverage shift to the distributors from the content owners. And this was a powerful content owner. And I think this market power isn't due to some sea change in market dominance of charter. It's really about indifference, which sounds odd, but as we discussed, the economics of passing through linear cable TV channels has become more of a rounding error for the cable companies from an economic standpoint. And so they have little to lose here. So they have this economic indifference that kind of gave them the ability to negotiate in a very different way. And the result is you're getting a better result for consumers. And now Charter and hopefully the broader cable industry will be able to participate as a marketing agent in the upside and be a little bit more agnostic as to whether you're streaming cable television channels or you're getting them through Charter because they're going to be getting a marketing fee for that, for instance. And you could see that in their response to Disney shutting down their service in that they're sending QR codes to sign up for YouTube TV to their customers. Who does that? And this would never have been done 10 to 15 years ago, but it's emblematic of the economic indifference they had to how far this business model had come. Can you just give a quick summary in terms of any of the relevant details? I think the reported numbers are that Charter pays Disney ESPN $2 billion a year in order to carry that channel. And that was flat or up slightly. But what were the other key details within that agreement that ultimately came to be? 
none of the financial details of the new agreement have been disclosed. Charter did disclose how much they were paying Disney in total before. I think what's important is that all Charter video subscribers will get Disney Plus included as part of their package. Higher tier subscribers will get ESPN Plus included, and that really eliminates that double dipping. And in return for Charter delivering so many incremental customers to Disney for those services, they're getting a wholesale rate that's very attractive. The other thing that they're getting is Disney is dropping some of its channels that aren't watched very often. One of the things that over time, a way that the cable networks extracted value from the ecosystem was to create more channels, bundle them together with channels that you absolutely had to have, like ESPN or ABC, in the case of Disney, and charge money for those channels. And always hard to attribute how much money do those channels make versus are they really riding off the coattails of these other channels. But what one of the things Charter got, which again, we think is good for consumers, is that those low calorie channels are coming out of the package as a way to pay for the content that consumers actually care about. Yeah, the cable bundle was a thing of beauty, maybe not necessarily for consumers, but from a business model perspective, was an incredible creation. And for the life that it had during that particular period, it really was something. If you were to see this shift where people were canceling cable packages and strictly just focusing on internet, which I think in terms of cutting cord, you might keep the actual customer themselves. They're just only using internet now. Is there a much different margin profile in terms of those customers versus those that are signed up for the entire bundle? The economics are pretty similar to Charter. The difference is that you don't have those pass-through programming costs. So the margin steps up, but the dollars are similar. The thing that's good for the cable companies is that as consumers transition to streaming, they consume more and more data. And the principal asset here is advantaged versus its competitors as consumers use more data. So fixed wireless and DSL can't keep up as technologies, as data usage continues to grow. And video is one of the key drivers of that. The capital intensity of the broadband business is lower than including it with the TV business. So when we made the investment in Charter in 2015, one of the components of our thesis was that the capital intensity of this industry is actually declining. And you've seen that over that time as we've unplugged cable TV bundles. You've seen the capital intensity of the industry fall, margins rise, and EBITDA growth and free cash flow, more importantly, accelerate. And John can give you the growth algorithm of that and how that's played out. Yeah. So from 2016 to 2022, Charter grew customer relationships 3.4% a year. Revenue only grew 0.3% a year because this high revenue product of video started shrinking out of the system. But EBITDA per customer relationship grew 3.3%. So when you think about adding those two together, your EBITDA growth was, let's call it mid sixes, maybe 7%. Over that same period of time, CapEx declined 7% cumulatively. And so your EBITDA less your structural CapEx grew at about 11.5% a year. And then when you look at that on a per share basis, because Charter maintains a constant leverage ratio and uses that capital to buy back stock, their operating profit per share grew 23% per year. Very interesting, just in terms of the productivity or efficiency within the system that you're able to realize. 
before we jump on, I do want to touch on phone slash mobile as part of a bundle. How important is that piece of the story? And I know they've entered into being a MVNO, which is beyond my scope of understanding, but I was hoping you could explain what that exactly means and how important that is in terms of the overall bundle and what they're selling. First of all, we don't view the wireless business as a great business. It's quite competitive nationwide. There's high fixed costs. There's low marginal costs. We went into this thinking a little bit skeptically, thinking this is unlikely to be a great business, but it's a nice thing to maybe reduce churn. And then when Comcast and Charter sold Spectrum to Verizon in 2011, they signed an MVNO agreement that effectively gave them a very competitive marginal cost with no capital requirements and an evergreen toll on Verizon and Verizon has to go buy Spectrum to increase capacity and grow its the data going through the system. Charter and Comcast, they don't have to pay for that in this agreement. It's a marginal cost model. So from a cost standpoint, they're actually in a pretty advantageous position. And in that advantageous position, and John can get into the details on how this works, actually improves as you get into certain areas of the country. And they have perfect data on where this is. And so the cable companies can mine their customer bases to find the most advantageous regions. And their success signing up customers to date has been shockingly good. And this has gone from a money losing operation to a nicely profitable operation. But it's early days and it's pretty small in the grand scheme. But John, maybe you want to get into some more detail on that. So separate from having that advantaged perpetual MVNO with Verizon that they got through that unique spectrum deal, the cable companies are an advantaged MVNO because they can offload more traffic from mobile phones onto the cable network just through the Wi-Fi that you have in your home and through the Wi-Fi that they've already deployed in public spaces. Where we think it might get even more interesting going forward is that if you think about the usage of mobile phones, 60% of the network traffic happens on 3% of the land area. So Charter and Comcast have the opportunity to selectively choose where to deploy their own wireless networks using shared and licensed spectrum that they got in a government auction called CBRS and overbuild, if you will, the wireless networks, but only where the economics make sense. And then in the rest of the country, where it may be rural and expensive, or there just may not be a ton of usage, they can keep that variable cost model and not have to deploy CapEx against that. If I'm to think about just simple customer behavior, is the idea of a customer just having one service provider and being able to have an all-in-one solution a piece of the puzzle here? I personally have a different cell phone provider or mobile provider than I do cable provider, but how relevant is that in the overall equation? I think there's some benefit to that. But if you discount that way, maybe there's more of a benefit to it. But is that really a source of structural advantage? I don't think so. I think that the structural advantage really comes from the network asset that the cable companies own and using that asset to create a lower cost, better product that consumers, I think, will gravitate to over time. The interesting analogy here is what happened with landline phone, where once the cable companies entered that market in the early 2000s, they started rapidly taking share because they had a lower cost product 
and the incumbent telephone companies. And today, Comcast and Charter are the largest landline phone companies in the world. While that's not something necessarily to brag about today, it was a very valuable market that the cable companies took over. And we think something similar can happen in the wireless market. Yeah, it seems to continuously come back to the infrastructure asset that they own in terms of being the differentiating piece, which makes a lot of sense. If we shift gears a little bit to the expense side of the equation, we touched a little bit just in terms of the cost to serve the content and some of those carriage fees. What are other major costs that factor into the business? Programming cost pass-through, as you mentioned, is a big one. The other costs are running and operating the network, customer service. So whether that's outages, answering customers' questions, your Wi-Fi doesn't work, your television's not working, that's actually a very big cost and one that the cable companies are continuously improving through the use of technology over time. The wireless MBNO cost is becoming a bigger cost as that business rapidly grows. It's again a cost that we think is a very good cost to have in the system. So if I were to dumb it down a bit, the content cost is essentially tied to the number of subscribers. So that's just going to match to variable cost in many ways. And the overhead costs, the fixed costs would be associated with running the network, the customer service, and everything associated with that. Is that a fair way to categorize it? You're exactly right that the programming costs are mostly a pass-through, while a lot of the other costs that Charter has are fixed and thus can scale as the customer base grows. For the mobile business specifically, we think that the MVNO costs are about 30% of incremental service revenues. They're pretty small. And the business, one of the things that's gotten us more excited the more work we've done is that we think the business can have margins that are approaching the company's average. Whereas in the beginning, we thought, oh, maybe this will be just a little bit of a break-even business. Traditional MVNOs had a roughly 10% EBITDA margin. Maybe this will be a little better. As we've learned more about the business, we really think this can be a significant margin generator for the companies. And then can you just provide a snapshot of what this looks like from a free cash flow perspective and then tie in the CapEx spend in terms of what is maintenance versus what's a reasonable way to think about that flowing through the business? So Charter generates about $22 billion of EBITDA right now. The company is spending about $11 billion this year on CapEx. That is a big step up and it includes a network upgrade, a rural build out, and a little bit of mobile CapEx, mostly for stores right now, but we'll transition to building some of the network. The way we think about the maintenance CapEx of the business is to take out those growth investments that are new. And then the perennial growth investment, which is extending the network. And so each year, Charter grows its passings about 2% a year, which you can think of that as about half of that coming from household growth, population growing about 1% a year. And the other half coming from Charter seeing opportunistic ways to increase its footprint. And so when you take out all of those pieces, and arguably, this is conservative because there's growth capex embedded in other parts of the spend, like in new customer premise equipment or scalable infrastructure that you're spending to add on new customers. But just simplistically, I think the easiest way to think about it is excluding those big buckets. And that gets you to a structural capex that's about 12% of revenue or quarter of EBITDA is the right zip code there. 
Understood. And Tony, you touched on a bit of this earlier in the conversation, just around how these businesses are valued, how charters valued. Seems like there's an EBITDA methodology that goes into this, but how would you describe the market's framework for thinking about this type of business? Yeah, as John said very well earlier, the obsession with EBITDA, it's an interesting simplification, but we have to understand that it's a simplification and there's limitations to it. The typical rule of thumb was you buy cable stocks at six times EBITDA, you sell them at eight times. And that's a historical thing. And Charter today is selling for around seven times EBITDA. There's a number of reasons why six to eight is too low for what we're seeing today. We've talked about the broadband transition and that being a bigger component of the business. The capital intensity is less, so the free cash flow per dollar of EBITDA is going up. And that means the multiple you pay for that EBITDA should be going up. The second thing is, Charter's largest partner, the US government, no longer charges 35% of your profits. They charge 21. And EBITDA is a pre-tax number. That means that the EBITDA multiple should go up 20, 25%, something like that. So there's a couple of reasons that there's an EBITDA shortfall. If you think about it in that six to eight historical range, there's just a couple of very good reasons that those are no longer valid is the best way to put it. We think nine times is a better multiple. And in terms of the outlook for EBITDA itself, when you're thinking about top line, whether it's subscriber count, their ability to win on pricing, and the margin profile of the business, they certainly have a gap between where they are versus competitors. Do you think of either of those things driving a different EBITDA growth profile versus what you've had historically? The difference between Charter and its competitors in margins, in our opinion, and free cash flow today because of these growth investments is the mindset of the management team is one that's more along the lines of let's maximize the value of this business over the next 20 years. And that includes making growth investments today and tomorrow to grow the value of this enterprise by increasing our passings, keeping our price competitive, and doing things like that. It's a different mindset. The rural expansion is another one where the government's offering some interesting incentives and they see an opportunity and have tested it and they're getting good returns. So they're going after that growth. And while that limits free cash flow today, it's building value in the future. And so we like that as long term investors. We're looking at this and saying these are higher return opportunities that management's taking advantage of at the cost of not getting the cash today. Are you suggesting that short-term investors might be uh, pressuring them to operate a little bit differently? You do see the difference in the strategy between a Comcast and a Charter today in their growth investments and the margins of the business, as we talked about earlier. We're very comfortable with this strategy, and we can get into management alignment when we get to management. But we think they're doing this for the right reasons, and it's not a function of them being sloppy or fat and bloated on the cost side of the house. We think over the next few years, there's tailwinds for the whole industry as this network upgrade winds down, as fixed wireless goes from being a share taker to flat to maybe at some point being a share donor. And then we think specifically at Charter, because of the products that they're offering at a discount to drive wireless growth, like Spectrum One, which is $50 a month for a new customer, where for a year you get broadband, Wi-Fi, and a free mobile line. That depresses your earnings. They've also made investments in customer service and to increase the tenure of their customer service reps and their marketing team, which will pay dividends down the road. So we think the whole industry is well positioned, but that 
charter, the EBITDA growth has been unusually depressed and is set to inflect going forward. And then on the opposite side of the ledger, risks here. There's obviously execution risk as it associates to anything, but what other risks would you point to in terms of the story playing out? Two that come to mind to me immediately, we talked about the competitive risks. The other ones are technology risk. So we wake up tomorrow and Elon Musk has figured out how to deliver very cheaply, very high-speed internet with very little capital required. If a substitute comes out of nowhere for some reason where we've cracked some physics barrier and we're able to do that wirelessly and compete with the kind of bandwidth that cable has, we don't see that coming. But if something like that happened, that's a risk. That's a left field, crack the code kind of a thing. And then the other one is regulatory. We can't forget it's more lightly regulated than utility, back to the infrastructure idea, but there are regulators here. And so you've got to be cognizant of a regulator having the ability to change the rules of the game in a way that's disadvantageous to a equity holder. Just to clarify, we do not think that Starlink is that risk or a big risk to the cable companies today. Starlink is a great product for rural customers that were previously served by geostationary satellites that are something like, off the top of my head, over 20,000 miles away from Earth. This new product they call LEO, or Low Earth Orbit Satellites, of which Starlink is the first, but there will be more. It's only a few hundred miles away. And so it provides a service with higher capacity and lower latency. It's a very expensive product, though, because you need so many more satellites to cover the entire Earth. And those satellites do not have an indefinite life with some people thinking they may only last five years. So you can see it today in the way the product is priced. It's much more expensive than traditional cable. It provides a lower speed with a higher latency. So while it's a great product for the world, we don't think it's a risk to the US cable businesses. I think the big trend in broadband is that everything is going wireless and the networks are getting closer and closer to their customers. And no one is closer to the customer or deeper in the neighborhood, if you think about it that way, than the cable businesses. You didn't bring up Starlink. It was on my list. I'm surprised to hear five-year useful life for something along those lines. But I imagine the environmental issues up there can be quite intense and something you can't control for. The other question I had on risks or just impact to the business, and it's a sign of the times, but understanding the amount of compute capacity that something like AI requires and the intensity that it's putting on some of the systems, does that play into the cable in any potential way, just in terms of how much data is required? Is that all happening on site so it's not impacting the wires? It's a question from somebody way outside of this world that I'm curious about. We think anything that increases data usage and requires low latency networking is an advantage for the cable companies. I think specifically to AI, it's early days. And we don't know how that's going to play out yet. How much, to your point, of that compute will be taking place locally versus in the cloud. You can imagine if it's in the cloud, that network connection becomes more important. So we'll have to see. But I think the broader point here is that as time goes on, we come up as a society with new use cases that require higher capacity, lower latency networks. And we don't know exactly what those are going to be. But when they come, the cable companies are well positioned to provide that service to customers. 
Well, this has been an excellent conversation. I've peppered you with more questions about the asset inside a business than I think I have on any business breakdown. So I appreciate that. But I think based on the answers, that is the most important piece of the story here. I wanted to close with our closing question that we always ask about lessons that you can take from this investment and looking at this business or at this industry that you think you could apply elsewhere. So what would those lessons be from looking at Charter? I think one lesson for us that we think a lot about internally is we talk about why companies make money instead of how they make money. And going back to our original investment and the, the kind of key differentiated view was that this is not a linear TV business, which us and everyone else agreed was going to have a tough path forward, but instead was a broadband infrastructure company, a utility, if you will. Yeah, two things I would add to that. Number one, we talked about this briefly, but I think it's really important. As an investor, when you're looking back on investments that have worked well, like Charter has, one of the common themes can be the business is getting better, not worse. And this shift to broadband and the more data is good position that they have has really improved the business. John went through the math of how the EBITDA and the free cash flow leverage works, and they've done a good job. And then the second thing is management. When you have management that's aligned with this sphere of influence from John Malone and thinking about real per share value and maximizing that over years, not quarters, they make a lot of really smart decisions, both on the M&A side and then on the capital allocation side. And they've levered returns to shareholders like us, to real business owners, by allocating capital really wisely on top of running the business. And they take all that free cash flow and they turn a dollar into $2 and they do it every year. And over time, that compounds and shareholders like us are a lot better off when management's making really smart decisions, not just on the income statement, but with the leftover residual free cash flow of the business. And these guys have done an exemplary job and the alignment is terrific. Chris Winfrey, the CEO, if the stock hits $1,000 by 2029, he stands to make $400 million. Tom Rutledge had a similar contract way back when. And this management team, like Tom Rutledge, chose to make a lot less money today with the hope that they make a lot more money tomorrow by taking care of shareholders the right way. We like that sort of alignment. Absolutely. It always comes back to alignment, but some great lessons there, both at a very micro level, more industry level, and even more higher level strategy. So thank you very much, Tony. And thank you, John. This has been an excellent conversation and appreciate you joining us on Breakdowns. Thanks, Tom. It's been a real treat. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 